When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 218A, Witches in Tudor, England. All the great British institutions have their traditions. The Houses of Parliament, for example, open with the knocking of the Black Rod on the doors of the Palace of Westminster, the arrival of the Crown Jewels, and the Monarch's speech declaring the intentions of the current session. The Tower of London has the daily ceremony of the keys, where the chief yeoman warder locks the gates, is challenged by a sentry and allowed to pass. Similarly, the History of England podcast has its tradition of guests denying that they are David Crowther. I am not David Crowther. I am Samuel Hume, and I am the writer and host of the History of Witchcraft podcast. And I am also an enormous fan of David's shows. I caught up to his release schedule back during Henry I's reign, I think, and have listened regularly ever since. The History of England was a key inspiration for me to start my own history podcast, and I remember contacting David early on for his sage wisdom and advice, which he of course duly gave. So, when I received a message from David asking if I would be interested in doing a guest episode on Tudor Witchcraft, I inwardly screamed with joy, but of course wrote back very professionally and seriously, saying, yes, I'm interested, I'll see if I can find the time. About five minutes after that, I found the time. So yes, dear listeners, today's episode is on witchcraft in Tudor England, and there is a real smorgasbord of topics to cover. The 16th century was a period of intense witch trials on the European continent, with thousands of people being tortured and executed across the Holy Roman Empire France, Spain, Scandinavia, Scotland, the list truly goes on. I won't go into too much detail on the possible reasons for the brutal period, since it would greatly derail what I'm here to talk about, but most scholars today consider it to be a combination of socio-economic difficulties, religious upheaval from the Reformation, a relaxation of laws that allowed trials to grow at an exponential rate, and the development of theological thought to allow for the belief in widespread and coordinated witch cults. Of course, it's a lot more nuanced than that, with the trials stretching across a century and a continent, how could it not be? But here I go getting derailed. 
This context is important, however, because of how much the experience of England contrasts with the affairs of its neighbours. Simply put, there were no mass trials in Tudor England that even approached the scale of continental panics. A relatively small trial, like the one held at the convent of Quedlinburg in 1589, where a mere 133 witches were executed in just one day, would be horrendously out of character for England. It just didn't happen. However, belief in witchcraft was widespread among the English, no less than in Scotland or on the continent. There were many trials for witchcraft and sorcery during the reign of the Tudor dynasty. The danger posed by witchcraft was not taken lightly. Henry VIII, for example, enabled the Act Against Conjurations, Witchcrafts, Sorceries and Enchantments, and was promulgated in 1542, and in the rambling way of Tudor laws, it declares that to use magic to, quote, get or find money or treasure, or to waste, consume or destroy any person in his body, members or goods, or to provoke any person to unlawful love, or for any other unlawful intent or purpose, or by occasion, or colour of such things, or any of them, or for despite of Christ, or for the lustre of money, dig up or pull down any cross or crosses, end quote, they shall be judged a felon, and would, quote, suffer such pains of death, loss, and forfeiture of their lands, tenants, goods, and chattels, and shall lose privilege of clergy and sanctuary, end quote. I'm almost certain David has covered the benefits of clergy and sanctuary before, but for the sake of clarity, the right of clergy was granted to members of the church to be tried in church courts rather than royal courts. This sometimes led to laxer punishments for obvious reasons. Certain moral and social crimes, such as witchcraft, were also judged in church courts rather than secular ones, also benefiting from these laxer punishments. The benefit of sanctuary was that of, essentially, barricading yourself in a church where, in theory, you can't be arrested. Now, of course, this rule was often repeatedly ignored, but under Henry's law, these protections were now legally removed. If you were accused of witchcraft, or doing any of the various things described, you had to face the music. Of course, spoiler, Henry dies in 1547, and his son, Edward VI, would repeal the 1542 Act shortly after ascending the throne. The next English law that specifically targeted witchcraft was after Elizabeth succeeded her half-sister Mary, who had in turn succeeded her half-brother Edward. The 1563 statute against conjurations, enchantments and witchcrafts was essentially a revival of her father's law, aimed solely at practitioners of harmful magic, only ordering the punishment of death when, quote, any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed, end quote, because of magic while some point to the return of Protestant ministers exiled during the reign of Mary as being instrumental in reenacting this law, there is little indication that this was actually the case. Indeed, the danger posed by witchcraft was credible enough to the governments of all three Tudor sibling monarchs. The regime of the Duke of Northumberland, who was the protector of Edward, was particularly concerned with acts of treasonable magic, specifically those that prophesied the death or deposition of Edward or of his ministers. In May 1551, a man called William Tassel had been arrested for, quote, casting figures and prophesying, quote, about the Privy Council. While in April of the following year, a former servant of the Duke of Norfolk, who, spoiler again, was rotting in prison for treason, was under suspicion for prophesying, quote, 
touching the king's majesty and other noble men of his council, end quote. When his rooms were searched, quote, certain characters and books of necromancy and conjuration were discovered, end quote. In June, a man known as Rogers was put in the pillory for sedition after having repeated, quote, lewd prophecies, end quote. And in October, the Privy Council gave the order to search for prophetic books in the house of a man called Leitzer, living in the city of York. Later the same year, after a wide-ranging investigation, several associates and family members of Norfolk's former servant were released from prison, although warned to, quote, beware of sorceries, end quote. The remainder of Edward's reign was menaced by similar cases until his death in 1553. The idea that predicting the death of the monarch was a treasonable offence was not a new one, but the Tudors appeared to have taken it particularly seriously. On the Shedcast, David referred to the execution of Elizabeth Barton, the Maid of Kent, a nun who received visions of a holy nature. When Henry VIII's marriage problem arose, the visions that had previously been endorsed by the king himself, as well as by Cardinal Wolsey, predicted that he would die shortly after he remarried. Instead, he would live for another decade and a half, while Barton would be hanged for treason. During Mary's reign, similar accusations arose concerning John Dee, the personal astrologer and advisor to then-princess Elizabeth. Two informers, men called Ferris and Prideaux, alleged that Dee had attempted to murder Mary, through black magic and poison. What had actually happened was Dee had, rather foolishly, shown Mary's horoscope to the princess, an act tantamount to treason. His close relationship to the princess, who was not on the best of terms with Mary, it has to be said, did not help his case, and he was investigated by the Star Chamber on these charges. Nothing came of them, however, and we will return to the fascinating life of John Dee in a moment. When it came to Elizabeth's turn to rule, after Mary died childless in 1558, she now became the target of similar magical attacks. The most famous case was perhaps in the summer of 1578, when the Privy Council found evidence of an assassination attempt of the Queen and two of her councillors. Now, for a Queen whose reign was dotted with plots to usurp or murder her, what makes this case particularly interesting is its method, no armed rebellions or palace coups or assassins in the night, no. The conspirators used wax figurines, dressed to resemble the Queen and her courtiers, with their names scrawled on the figures in ink, which were then buried in a dung heap. Yes, a dung heap. A heap of dung. Now, I know what you may be thinking. How on earth is that considered an assassination attempt? Well, dear listeners, this is an example of image magic. Now, image magic is an ancient practice, with similar artefacts found from the time of the ancient Greeks and the Roman Empire. Often formed from clay in this period, the figurines would be accompanied by the hair or nails of the target, as well as a tablet inscribed with their name, and what the caster wished to happen to them. They would then be placed somewhere important, such as under the target's house, in a recent grave, in a temple, or just out of sight, such as down a well. These were often curses, in Athens in particular, lawyers and politicians often blamed temporary lapses of memory or focus on being attacked by witchcraft, which is as good an excuse as any, and I'll remember that next time I have to present my work. They were also used for romantic reasons, although 
that may be stretching the definition of romance ever so slightly. Figurines used for romantic magic were found penetrated by nails in various parts of their anatomy, which to me doesn't sound particularly pleasant. One doll was found inside a clay pot in Egypt, along with a lead tablet that stated that, quote, the gods have the right to drag her by her hair, by her guts, to give her no comfort of food or sleep until she is obedient to me, Serapamon, end quote. Now, clearly, this Serapamon was the Romeo of the ancient world, but somewhat closer to home, if you live in Britain, that is, a huge collection of tablets have been found in the city of Bath, hailing from the times of Roman Britain. Mostly, these cursed tablets were meant almost as a magical security system, threatening the intervention of the Romano-British goddess Sulis Minerva upon anyone who stole the clothes and belongings of the bathers. But I've derailed myself again, haven't I? Well, the important thing to know is that image magic has a long history, and it's no surprise that Elizabeth found herself the target of one. The Elizabethan court was briefly shaken by this discovery, and such was its value as a topic of gossip that even foreign dignitaries reported on the find. The Spanish soldier turned diplomat Bernardino de Mendoza was particularly descriptive, so I'll read an excerpt of his dispatches. Now, on my own show, I don't normally attempt the accents of the people I quote, but I'm in David's home shed, as it were, so I'm sure you agree it's only right that I do so this time. The central figure had the word Elizabeth written on the forehead, and the side figures were dressed like her counsellors, and were covered with a great variety of different signs, the left side of the images being transfixed with a large quantity of pig's bristles, as if it was some kind of... Witchcraft. Now, before we go any further, I'm very, 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 very sorry for that. It wasn't quite Spanish. It was more French slash Italian slash a little bit of German in there, I think. But the topic to take away from this is not that I can't do accents, but I can't, but rather that this is a topic of great importance if it's being transmitted back to foreign kingdoms. This was seen as an assassination attempt of a reigning monarch. But, despite it being the talk of the town, the investigation led by the Lord Mayor and the Bishop of London failed to bring any suspects in for questioning. A few years later, in 1583, a Catholic conspiracy was revealed. One of the conspirators, Francis Throckmorton, had been acting as a middleman between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Catholic dissidents in England and on the continent. When he was arrested, he was tortured, and he admitted to being involved in the plot to overthrow Elizabeth and install Mary, coordinated by our friend Mendoza. Now, he later retracted this confession, but he was still executed, while Mendoza was ejected from the kingdom, presumably returning to Italy, or France, or Germany, or wherever it was he hailed, because it certainly wasn't Spain. When being tortured, however, Throckmorton revealed a list of co-conspirators, These were mostly Catholic holdouts or discontent nobles, but the list went on to include a series of unexpected individuals such as, quote, Old Bertles, the Great Devil, Darnley, the Sorcerer, Maud Toogood, Enchantress, the Old Witch of Ramsbury, and, quote, Gregson, the North Tale Teller, he who was one of them three that stole the Earl of Northumberland's head from the turrets of York, end quote. Spoiler alert! Northumberland was a Catholic that tried to rebel against Protestant Elizabeth during the Rising of the North in 1569, but was defeated, captured, and executed. 
His head would be something of a totem for any further Catholic resistance. The fact that several practitioners of magic were included in this list is interesting in itself. Either they were involved in the conspiracy, or more likely the tortured conspirators were grasping at any name they could think of. The fear that witches were allying themselves with Catholic usurpers was present throughout the length of Gloriana's reign. Luckily, Elizabeth could count on the services of John Dee throughout her life. Dee was born in London in 1527 to a Welsh family, his father Roland serving Henry VII. Dee was something of a bright spark, and later attended Cambridge, where he apparently studied for 18 hours of each day, allowing two hours for food and socialising, with another four for sleep. Now I can attest that this is exactly my schedule as well, although with some minor alterations. At the age of 20, he left England to travel the world, first visiting the Low Countries and then on to Louvain and Paris, absorbing, quote, a considerable amount of astrological knowledge, end quote. At this point, his reputation was such that he was offered the post of Professor of Mathematics at the University of Paris, although he did reject the offer and returned to England as a renowned man of learning. His astrological work brought him some controversy. Astrology was always something of a grey area when it came to heresy. Something about trying to interpret God's plan in the stars got some people's backs up. As we've already mentioned, he made the error of sharing Queen Mary's horoscope to Elizabeth, which got him in a bit of hot water, although he successfully extricated himself from that pot and was immediately employed by Elizabeth once her half-sister duly died. Dee was instructed to scour the stars for the most fortuitous date for the Queen's coronation, and from then on the wise man was brought in to advise the Queen on a vast array of topics. His knowledge on all matters meant that he was brought in to assist with treating Elizabeth's illness in 1571, in determining which lands the Queen could rightfully be called sovereign in in 1580, as well as advising the government on calendar reform in the mid-1580s. Dee was also consulted on more arcane matters. He was brought in to protect the Queen from magical attack, particularly during the case we just heard about, as well as being consulted on the significance of a newly seen comet. For John Dee there was no separation between mundane and supernatural knowledge. So we see Dee frequently referred to as conducting experiments in alchemy, as well as attempting to summon angels in order to, in the words of one historian, bridge the terrestrial and the super-celestial and ascend to true wisdom. It seems that Dee believed that he had succeeded in speaking to the angel Raphael through his assistant, Edward Kelly, who taught Dee the language of God. This would allow him to, quote, transform human knowledge and the declining world simultaneously. Quite a lofty goal, but sadly God's language turned out to conform to no known rules of grammar, syntax, or pronunciation, and to only be understandable as the world was actually ending. So a bit of a letdown. After this, Dee travelled with Kelly across Europe, visiting the courts of King Stefan of Poland and Emperor Rudolf in Prague, and, with some success, advocating their spiritual conferences. Kelly had grown his own reputation at this point, and was widely sought after for his knowledge of alchemy. Naturally, this would be quite a lucrative career, and around this time, Kelly informed Dee that the angel Uriel had ordered them to share their possessions, including their wives. Which they apparently did. Shortly after this, the two went their own separate ways, with Dee returning to England with a pregnant wife, 
while Kelly became the court alchemist of the emperor. As to be expected, this behaviour did not please everyone. Aside from the events during Mary's reign, while he had been away, travelling for six years, Dee's house had been vandalised and his great library largely destroyed. From here on, his academic career was essentially over. Elizabeth did grant her old favourite a position at Christ's College Manchester, but his new colleagues largely despised him. After Elizabeth's death and the accession of James I, we find him petitioning the new king to clear him of accusations of, quote, being a conjurer or caller or invocator of devils, end quote, which did not appear to have been granted. Dee finally died of natural causes in 1608 after being reduced to poverty and forced to sell off his possessions to eat. An ignoble end to a brilliant man. John Dee was, however, not the only high-ranking member of Elizabethan society to be interested in the supernatural, but their interest was often just in stamping that behaviour out. One such man, writing in 1559, was the Bishop of Salisbury, John Jewell, who stated that, quote, the number of witches and sorcerers has everywhere become enormous. This kind of people, these last few years, have marvellously increased, end quote. In the 1580s, a Puritan priest called John Darrell conducted a series of exorcisms and witch trials which were actively disputed by the authorities, both secular and spiritual. Cross-examination of his patients, slash victims, revealed a plethora of people who were mentally ill or otherwise susceptible to manipulation, and others who had just been paid and coached on how to act possessed. During the trial of one suspected witch, Margaret Roper, a local magistrate ordered her released due to the revelations of Darrell's conduct, threatening the Puritan with imprisonment if he did not cease his activities. Of course, he didn't, and instead swore that he would, quote, expose all of the witches in England. He was then arrested and found to have been conducting fraudulent investigations and exorcisms, and was subsequently imprisoned for a few years, although he was released by 1599. One aspect of Darrell's work that we can all of us appreciate is his writings inspired the names of the demons in Shakespeare's King Lear, such as Flibbertigibbet, which is an amazing name. In the last months of Elizabeth's reign, Sir Edmund Anderson, Queen Elizabeth's Lord Chief Justice, told a jury at a witchcraft trial in 1602 that, quote, The land is full of witches. They abound in all places. I have hanged five or six and twenty of them. There is no man here that can speak of them more than myself. But while there was certainly a smattering of zealous witch hunters in Elizabethan church and state, England also had the joy of being home to one of the great anti-witch hunt writers, Reginald Scott. Scott published The Discovery of Witchcraft in 1584, and it certainly pulls no punches in its condemnation of witch belief. Taking a similar stance as the German physician Johann Weyer, Scott defined witches as either innocent victims of rampant ignorance and legal barbarity, or mentally ill and senile persons deluded by their imagination, or their Catholicism. Magical powers, either conducted by so-called witches or performed by respected individuals like Dee and Kelly, were little more than, quote, prestigious juggling. Quote, illusions created by human trickery are simply strange but natural causes. For Scott, demons could not possibly collude with human beings, as they had no corporeal form and were purely spiritual, and he drew from scripture to support these views. To suggest that, quote, witches could 
exceed in quantity, quality and number all the miracles that Christ wrought here upon earth, when Christ himself said, the works that I do no man may accomplish, why should we think that a foolish old woman can do them all, and many more? End quote. Taking aim at witch hunters, Scott declared that the only people who took such things seriously were, quote, children, fools, melancholic persons, and papists, end quote. I would love to be a fly on the wall when Scott told the Puritan Daryl that he was essentially the Pope Light. Scott was actually quite efficient in his writings, truth be told, since he managed to combine a strong argument against the existence of witchcraft with some good old-fashioned Elizabethan Catholic bashing. He wrote, quote, I see no difference between these and popish conjurations, for they agree in order, words, and matter, differing in no circumstances, but that the papists do it without shame, openly, the other do it hugger-mugger secretly. End quote. That is a really brilliant phrase, isn't it? I've never heard it before, but I'm going to be using it from now on. Despite the widespread publication of the discovery of witchcraft, Scott's arguments found many opponents, and not just from the Catholic Church. Essentially, the basis of the discovery's arguments was that the spiritual world could have little influence on the material one, which was extremely difficult to reconcile with the commonly held tenets of 16th century Christianity, either Catholic or Protestant. Despite every page of the discovery referencing the Bible or the writings of the saints, and Scott's obviously passionate enthusiasm for the Holy Spirit being able to influence the world, his works were extremely isolated in the contemporary debate on witchcraft, and he had some very prestigious opponents. Most notably for the near future of the history of England, one James Stuart, then the King of Scotland, and a passionate witch hunter in his own right. He wrote the treatise Demonology, partly with the intention to refute the opinions of Scott. There is a tradition, which does lack contemporary evidence, it has to be said, that upon inheriting the English throne in 1603, James ordered all surviving manuscripts of Scott's discovery of witchcraft to be burnt by the public hangman. Now, whether or not this actually happened, it does seem to sum up the general attitude among witchcraft scholars towards Reginald Scott. So what about those scholars? English demonologists shared many of the same approaches to witchcraft as their continental counterparts. Advocates of witch trials referred to the treatment of magicians and sorcerers in classical Roman Greece, certain elements of Lutheran and Calvinist theological thought, continental studies on the topic, such as the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of the Witches, and of course the Bible and the works of the Church Fathers. The peculiarities of English witchcraft can be seen in the approach to folklore, where English tales of fairies and goblins were demonised, literally becoming portrayed as servants of the devil, either by existing and seeing his infernal will be done on earth, or by not existing and spreading the taint of superstition and ignorance. The gradual increase in trials towards the end of the 16th century, while still never reaching the level of the continent, only supported those scholars that attacked witchcraft as a danger. Look, there are witches everywhere, and you can believe it because it's in the newspapers, or rather, the ballads. Opponents of the witch trials similarly used elements of Protestant theology in combination with a practical scepticism about the danger posed by mostly old women. Of course, you did not need to be a die-hard Scott apologist to oppose trials for witchcraft, and I mean Scott as in our old friend Reggie, not England's lovely northern neighbours. 
It was perfectly possible to accept that, yes, witchcraft was a dangerous phenomenon, but that didn't mean that every case that ended in a conviction was correct. In fact, it is more than likely that most people, rich or poor, educated or not, took up the substantial ground between you can't move for witches, let's just kill them, and witches don't exist, you're all idiots for getting fooled by a kid's party trick. It would be possible to accept that witchcraft existed and was dangerous, but not to worry too much about it. It was just one of many hazards that could negatively impact your life, or the life of someone you knew. Similarly, old lady Ethel from up the road was always a bit nasty, and that boy did die after he climbed into her garden, so I suppose she might have been a witch, but I don't believe that she was part of a large international satanic cult. Now, while Tudor England never had witch hunts on the scale of the Holy Roman Empire or Scotland, there were still trials, and the relative scarcity of them meant that they were highly publicised. I'm only going to cover a couple of the more interesting ones today. English witches were rarely accused of cosmic-scale destruction, such as creating storms or spreading plagues, like they were accused on the continent. Instead, witches were more likely to be accused of highly mundane crimes, based on personal grudges, and they were rarely accused of interfering with the fertility of their targets, whereas continental witches were regularly accused of causing impotence or miscarriages. In many cases, accusations of witchcraft came from richer villages against their poorer neighbours. Ellen McFarlane makes a convincing case that, as the responsibility for poor relief gradually transferred from the church to the community, resentment grew. If a poor neighbour was refused aid, an accusation of witchcraft was a means of transferring guilt. The transgressor of community norms was not the neighbour that refused to help, but rather the malevolent beggar whose mumbled threats preceded the sickness or death of a child or cattle. The first case to look at today is the first witch trial reported in an English pamphlet, a medium that would come to be one of the most popular ways to record such events. In 1566, three women were accused of witchcraft, with one, Elizabeth Francis, confessing to being gifted a familiar at the age of 12 by her grandmother. One aspect of witch beliefs that is more dominant in English trials than anywhere else is the idea of familiars. Demonic servants, often provided by the devil when one first became a witch at the Sabbat, that took the form of common animals, such as dogs, cats, and mice. Familiars aided witches in their evil, monitored their loyalty to their new infernal master, and were fed the witch's own blood from a mark or teat, which could take the form of almost any blemish or growth. In Elizabeth Francis's case, her familiar was a black cat called Satan, who spoke to her and brought her gifts. At one point, she claimed that he had brought her 18 sheep, which historian James Sharp suggests was the upper limit of her idea of wealth. Satan, the cat not the devil, also attempted to gain for her the love of an Andrew Biles. When Biles refused to marry her, the cat caused his harvest to fail, and then killed him. Every time Satan, the cat not the devil, did something for Elizabeth, she would feed it a drop of her blood. When Elizabeth finally found a man to marry her, she reportedly grew bored, and ordered Satan, the cat not the devil, to kill her six-month-old daughter and cripple her new husband. Elizabeth then denounced her sister, Agnes Waterhouse, as also being a witch. Elizabeth confessed to trading Satan, the cat not the devil, to Agnes for a cake, which seems like a terrible deal. Agnes then used the familiar to kill one of her own pigs to test its powers, and after an argument with a neighbour, had it kill their cattle. 
Perhaps my favourite bit of this report is this. Satan, the cat, not the devil, had a bed made out of a pot stuffed with wool. But Agnes needed the wool, so she turned Satan, the cat, not the devil, into a toad. There's just something so mundane and casual about that. When questioned about her religious habits, Agnes said that she prayed often, but only in Latin, at Satan, the cat, at the toad, not the devil's request. What is interesting about this bit of the account is the fact that Agnes's confession does not have her renouncing God, as many continental confessions did. Instead, and much worse to the Elizabethan mind, was that the devil preferred her to use Latin, the language of the Pope. The third witch on trial was Agnes's daughter, Joan, who backed up the other two confessions with her own testimony. Agnes was famously the first woman to be executed for witchcraft in England, although Elizabeth was hanged 13 years later after a second conviction for witchcraft. Notably, at the first trial, a number of very high-profile members of the Elizabethan court were present, including the Queen's attorney, Sir Gilbert Gerard, suggesting that this trial was both unusual and important to the Crown. The second trial we'll cover is the 1582 trial at St. Osef in East Anglia. Fourteen women were charged with witchcraft, ten of them with the capital offence of causing death through sorcery. At the centre of the affair was Ursula Kemp, a sometimes nursemaid, sometimes midwife, who had a reputation for curing sickness through her magical abilities. Ursula had cured a young boy, Davy Thurlow, of an unnamed illness, but his mother, Grace Thurlow, refused her services as a nursemaid for her younger daughter, apparently causing some offence. So, when said daughter fell out of the cot and broke her neck, fingers were immediately pointed at Ursula, although apparently not by Grace, who instead sought her out for treatment for her arthritis. Ursula showed her technique to ease the pain, but Grace refused to pay her for her time, at which point her arthritis got worse. Grace then went to the authorities, and Ursula went to trial. At the trial, the magistrate persuaded Ursula's eight-year-old son to testify that his mother was a witch, and after being promised clemency if she cooperated, Ursula confirmed her son's account, testifying that she had four familiars, two of them in the form of cats, called Titty and Jack, one in the form of a toad called Piggin, and another, a lamb called Tiffin. She fed these familiars on bread, cake, beer, and, of course, her own blood. Jack, the black cat, had killed Ursula's sister-in-law, and the lamb had killed Grace's daughter. Prompted for the names of her associates, Ursula complied, naming a series of women who were, in turn, arrested and prompted for further names. In the end, only two people were not indicted for witchcraft out of the original 14. The others faced a variety of fates. Imprisonment for witchcraft. Imprisonment for crimes other than witchcraft. Acquittal. Ursula Kemp, however, despite being promised clemency, was hanged by the neck until she was dead, alongside one other defendant, Elizabeth Bennett. In 1921, two skeletons were discovered in St. Osythe, with iron rivets hammered into their joints, a common way to stop witches rising from the grave. These are believed to be the remains of Ursula and Elizabeth. As sad as these tales are, I'm going to point out again that England never suffered the panics that raged in parts of Europe, with the notable exception of the witch-finder general, Matthew Hopkins, but he was gallivanting around East Anglia during the Civil War and is therefore far outside of my remit today. The theories for why England was spared the brunt of the witch crazes are well debated. 
At a state level, the English judicial system was far more restrained than those elsewhere. The system was not designed to actively hunt down wrongdoing, and instead relied on accusations. Torture was not legally allowed in cases of witchcraft, and while it no doubt occurred in some cases, without mass torture, there were no mass denunciations. The strong hand of justice was critical in preventing any such panics from materialising. It was difficult for a particularly zealous magistrate to get too full of himself when he was constantly reporting to London. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed my guest episode as much as I've enjoyed making it. If it's sparked an interest in the topic, please feel free to have a listen to the History of Witchcraft podcast, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, and all other good podcast apps. You can also find the show's page on Facebook for links to the RSS feed as well as updates on the show, and can send any questions or feedback to that page. Or, if you're old-fashioned, by emailing me at witchcraftpodcast at gmail.com. David has also asked me to remind everyone that you have until the 30th of July to complete the Thomas More quiz on the website. Every member that completes the quiz gains an entry into a prize draw for a Henry VIII halfpenny. And if you get over 75% of the quiz right, you get two entries. Can't say better than that. I've already had a go. It was fast and fun. Granted, I didn't get a second entry, but it was still good. All that's left for me to do is to yet again thank David for the chance to make this episode and to wish all of you good luck and have a great week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.